0: I believe in America.
1: That is probably the greatest opening of any movie of all time, because it sets up everything. You just, and what in the line, I believe in America.
0: America has made my fortune and I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her neighbor to dishonor her family.
1: I mean, how can you get better than that? That's like the mantra of the whole film.
0: She found a boyfriend, not an Italian. She went to the movies with him. She stayed out late. I didn't protest. Two months ago, he took her for a drive with another boyfriend. They made her drink whiskey, and then they tried to take advantage of her.
1: From that moment, from that first moment, he has you. That's Mark Seal. He's our guest today on The
0: Drunk Projectionist. Mark is the author of a new book about one of the best American films ever, The Godfather from 1972. The title of Mark's book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, the epic story of the making of The Godfather. Seal is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair he's written about the making of Pulp Fiction and other classic films. Paramount Pictures financed The Godfather. At the time, Robert Evans was in charge of Paramount, which was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Evans later wrote the book The Kid Stays in the Picture, which was his entertaining account of the movie business. In this episode, you'll hear Mark Seal and I talk about Evans, his relationship with director Francis Ford Coppola. Marlon Brando, Diane Keaton, Al Pacino, and so much more. By the way, I occasionally say Coppola instead of Coppola, but what are you going to (laughs) do? Stay tuned. This is The Drunk Projectionist. Today, The Godfather.
1: My name is Mark Seal, and I wrote a book entitled uh, "Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli: uh, The Epic Story of the Making of the Godfather." What were some of the other titles you tossed around? Hmm. Huh. I can't remember. I I don't know. We loved that one so much. You know, it just uh, that was the one that kind of stuck. It's one of the greatest uh, movie lines of all time, and it was totally ad-libbed. by uh richard castellano who played clemenza after they shot uh, Poligatto in the shadow of the statue of liberty leave the gun take the cannoli so much about this movie was ad-lib or or on the fly or in in the in the flow of of so many things happening, and I just thought it was indicative of of the of the of the film as a whole. I mean, it, people came up with these amazing ideas. Some of them were, of course, envisioned from the start. Like when Francis Ford Coppola saw the entire cast whole, uh, and nobody else wanted the cast that he saw in his mind, including Al Pacino and Marlon Brando and everyone else. So I just thought the title uh, summed up summed up to everything.
0: When I interview people about movies, I like to start with the script. And before and in this case, before the script, there was a novel. Yeah. So let's
1: talk about Mario Puzo. His big break was that he got a job at a company called Magazine Management in New York, and it was the publisher of many Pulp Fiction uh, magazines. And so he became the greatest Pulp Fiction writer of them all, they said. He was able to spin these stories that you would believe were fact like war stories heroics uh you know there was even one story about the mob so he was very good at coming up with these incredible fiction narratives with these larger than life characters and that was the preparation that he did to write the godfather so he had written two novels and both of them were critically well-received, but they made very little money. Uh, I think he got an advance of $3,500 on the first one and 3000 on the second, so he was going down. So at one point, he just said to himself, um, there's a famous story that I relate in the book and that Mario told himself many, many times, is that he was uh, going to the uh, VA hospital in a taxi in... Um, in, uh, in New York City after suffering a gallbladder uh, attack. And as soon as he arrived at the hospital, he opened the door and he the pain was so intense that he fell out of the cab and into a gutter. And he looked up at the night sky and he said, here I am, published writer, and I'm dying like a dog. And at that point he said, that's when I decided I was going to be rich and famous. From that point on, in his in his second book, Fortune of Pilgrim, he had a, um, a a mafia character, and one of the editors who who had turned down his next book next book had said, "If only you had a little bit more of that mafia stuff in there, maybe it would be a good seller." And so that struck a chord with him, and he went home. And at the time, in the 60s, the K- Kefauver hearings were sweeping America. They were, the, they were the hearings on organized crime, and they were nationally televised from 19 cities across America.
0: This was the hearing where the camera was just
1: on the gangster's hands. Yes, Frank Costello's hands. and uh, But anyway, America was getting its first look at organized crime, and Bobby Kennedy was involved in the hearings, and... Uh, They were Senate hearings, and everybody was glued to their television sets, including Mario Puzo in his suburban New York living room. He ordered these hearings uh, from the uh, Library of Congress, I think uh, the transcripts for $10 or something, and along with a lot of other research material, because he was a voracious researcher and reader. He began to dream and he sat down at his manual typewriter and he created from thin air, he said he never met an actual gangster, but from all this research material and also his own incredible imagination, he created the Corleone family that would become iconic. He created a family that was greater in fiction than the mob was in fact. He created this this family of men with wives and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons. And he created a family, and that family would soon sweep the hearts and minds of the world.
0: And was Don Corleone based in part on his mother?
1: Yes, that's what he said. He said said a lot of the lines uh, that Don Corleone spoke were directly from his mother's (laughs) mouth, you know. That seems
0: so, you
1: know, fantastic and yet unbelievable. So tell us more about that. She was a woman who had a gift of language and she would say some of the lines that ended up in the script, including revenge is a dish that tastes best when it's cold and a man who doesn't spend time with his family isn't a real man. There is also, someone said, he said it was, you know, I'm gonna make him an offer, He can't refuse but in the book uh, other people claim that they said that so who knows there's so many things about the godfather that are that are myth and uh and there's a lot of different different uh viewpoints on on various things but definitely his mother inspired part of don corleone
0: tell us about the research that uh did at gambling casinos in Las Vegas.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was able to speak with uh, a pit boss in a gambling in a casino in Las Vegas at the Sands. And he had said that Mario, he showed up one day. They didn't know who he was and he was at the roulette wheel. He was asking a lot of questions. They wondered who he was. And it turned out that he was a writer, that they learned that he was a writer. And he, he said he was researching a book and uh, The pit boss told me that as long as he kept gambling, they would keep talking. And so there was some back and forth about, uh, you know, the the hotel, the Sands, Sinatra, um, you know, who was who and what was what. And uh, at least the, the, the pit boss claimed that some of that went into the book. So did you read The Godfather first or did you see the movie? In 1972, I was a college freshman. I entered a theater. Uh, in March that year when it just came out. And I always like to think I entered the theater as one person and I came out another. I mean, my eyes were just open to this other world, you know, that I never knew existed. Don't ask me about my business, Kate. Is it true? Don't ask me about my business. No. And I think a lot of people felt like that. As I write in the book, at the premiere in March 1972 in New York, uh, Robert Evans, the, uh, the head of production at Paramount, tells this story in his book uh, that he um, sat between Henry Kissinger and his wife, Allie McGraw, and the, the, the credit, the screen went, went on, and then the lights went up after three hours, and nobody said a word. It was complete silence and Evans thought it's a bomb, but it wasn't a bomb. It was a cultural phenomenon uh, because people were just stunned into silence and that happened in theaters around the world.
0: And as I was reading your book, it occurred to me that just about everybody involved in the making of The Godfather was broke. I mean, Francis Ford Coppola was living in a tiny apartment with his family. He was in debt. Brando was washed up. Pacino, Khan, Keaton, Duvall, they were all unknowns. And Paramount Pictures, the studio was near near broke. And there was all these rumors that they might be bought by another company. And it seemed like everyone was on the precipice or already just in financial
1: ruin exactly and i think that's one thing that made the movie so great everybody was fighting for their lives you know that they uh you know mario puzo did the did the novel for money francis ford coppola made made it made the movie he didn't want to do it in the beginning so everybody was like on the precipice of, of what's going to happen but if, if, if this thing doesn't go but everybody doubted it from the beginning it was so unlikely you know nobody believed that mob movies would play because Paramount had made a film called The Brotherhood with Kirk Douglas and while it wasn't terribly reviewed it was actually well reviewed in some in some places it didn't do well at the box office so so Paramount was reluctant to make the movie but then something happened the the novel which they had bought cheap for like $12,500 uh, had become a blockbuster on the bestseller list for for months and months and months worldwide. So they had to make the movie.
0: And so previous gangster movies were box office flops. And they they decided, this is what I learned by reading your book and also by reading the Robert Evans book, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Kid Stays in the Picture, that, right. that they had non-Italians, they had Jews, making yeah. Italian gangster pics. So they decided they were going to hire Italians this time.
1: Yeah, that's what Peter Bart and Robert Evans said to themselves one night. Why don't gangster films work? Uh, and that's when Evans or Bart, one of them said, you know, because they it, it needs to be made by Italian-Americans. You have to smell the spaghetti, you know. So Bart, Peter Bart, much to his eternal credit, said, I want to give it to Francis Coppola. And uh, Evans said, who? <laughs> and there was reluctance. <laughs> Because other directors had turned it down, so it was Bart who wanted to give it to Coppola. Peter Bart wanted to give it to Francis Coppola, and Francis Coppola read the novel and he thought, "What is this? The Carpetbaggers? You know, it was it was not what he wanted to do." All oh, right, because because Coppola was an artist, and this was commercial. Yes, yes, this was a commercial film. He was in San Francisco, had his own studio, American Zoetrope, and he wanted to do great art. And this was a commercial film with a big studio. The thing that he had left Los Angeles to get away from, and now he was coming back uh, to do this. And that's when all the friction and all the wars and all the and all the uh, tensions began. But it was like you know, it's like uh, the pressure on a piece of coal, and a diamond a diamond emerges. It's just <laughs> like all this pressure and all this strife created this masterpiece. All right.
0: Well, let's let's talk about a lot of that. That stress and pressure. So, and it began with casting. Uh, And I think the most famous story that that some listeners may already know is the story of Marlon Brando. So let's start there.
1: So, Marlon Brando was uh, considered washed up. He was 47 years old. He had a reputation for being temperamental on the sets and, and problematic. And nobody wanted Brando. Nobody wanted Brando in the role except for. Mario Puzo saw Brando while he was writing the book as the Godfather, and had even written him a letter saying he thought he was the only actor who could play the Godfather with the intensity that the role required. And then Coppola also saw him as the Godfather. He, he said, to me, it came down to either Marlon Brando or Laurence Olivier. But Laurence Olivier was living in London. He was in his, he was older then, so he was, you know, too old. For the not too old for the role but to travel and and for the hectic schedule and um but nobody wanted Brando so finally uh Coppola kept insisting on assisting Brando was the only one that he could see as the godfather and they said okay under three conditions and one of them was that he would do it for very little money that he would put up a bond and he had to do a screen test a, an actor like Brando uh would, unlikely uh, commit to a screen test. So Coppola called it a makeup test. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And so he and uh, a cameraman, uh, and a few assistants, went up to Mulholland Drive, where Brando was living. And Brando comes out uh, in a kimono with his hair in a ponytail 47 years old, He pulls back his ponytail. He puts on some uh, shoe polish on his upper lip. He stuffs his cheeks with uh, Kleenex. He says, I want to look like a bulldog. And he starts talking in this gravelly voice. And while the cameras are rolling, he becomes Don Corleone. And everybody's just floored. They can't believe it. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that wounded your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my enemies. Coppola takes the, the, the screen test, you know, the tape to New York and he shows it to uh, Charlie Bluedorn the industrialist who owned Paramount, whose company owned Paramount and Blue goes, no, no, no. I don't, you know what he saw. It was Brandon, No, no, no. I don't want him. I don't want him. And then all of a sudden the transformation, he goes, that's fantastic. (laughs) And everybody agreed. And the great, the most mysterious thing is then the, that tape vanishes. Nobody's seen it since. Wow. Nobody knows where it is. You would think that would be something somebody would keep. Well, I'm sure somebody kept it, but nobody can find it as far as I can con—I uh, can tell. It's like, as I wrote in the book, it vanished like a lost treasure in a shipwreck. Uh, <laughs> nobody knows where it is, but that won him the role. And that role won him an Oscar for the 1973 Best Actor Oscar. Other actors
0: in the movie were ones that Coppola also had to fight for and also had to do screen tests with. And that would be Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton... And Jimmy Conn, right?
1: Exactly. So again, he was such a—he's the visionary of this whole thing. He envisioned the cast before anybody else did, and he called them all to San Francisco, and he shot these homemade screen tests. He said his wife cut their hair, and he shot these tests. Luca Brasi held a revolver against Hallie's head,
0: and my father told Hallie that he
1: his signature or his brains would be on the contract. Then he showed them to, to the studio and nobody liked any of, the, any of the actors. The biggest fight was over Al Pacino. Al Pacino had not appeared in a movie before. He, he was a star on Broadway. He had won a Tony for Does a Tiger Wear a Necktie? But he hadn't been in a movie. He had, he had filmed The Panic in Needle Park. So nobody wa- thought Al Pacino could carry the role of Michael, which, which secondary to, to, uh, to the Don, carries the movie, uh, except for Coppola. Because Coppola said every time he closed his eyes while thinking about that Sicily scene, he saw the face of Al Pacino. So there's all this tension at the beginning, before
0: uh, principal photography started, like is Coppola the right director? What are the casting decisions going to be? But then even after principal photography started, there was like, oh, my God, should we keep Pacino or not keep Pacino?" Also, huge rumors that
1: Coppola might be fired. Right, exactly. Yeah, Coppola said he felt like he, he could be fired any day. And, you know, there was insurrection on the set. Uh, some people wanted him fired. But, you know, he just saw the movie and he he just he was dogged. He was he was in. Uh, intense he was uh you know it, he was under such stress uh but at the same time he knew what he wanted he, he had written uh the script with mario puzo he had written it relying on puzo's novel as his guidepost and and everything in the movie is almost you know straight out of the novel but um he had learned he knew how to ratchet everything up to the hilt and um so he just, you know, he was the kind of the hero of the whole thing. And he, without Coppola, you know, you wouldn't have the movie you have today. Who knows what you would have?
0: Let's talk about Robert Evans versus Francis Ford Coppola. And, and yeah. which one is closer to the truth? Because Robert Evans wrote this this terrific book, The Kid Stays in the Picture. Right. Most movie buffs have read it. It reads terrifically. And of course, she's the hero in pretty much the whole book. Right
1: each individual has their has their own take on on everything and uh both are very compelling uh (laughs) you know you have to just kind of what i try to do in the book is just you know tell every everything i could without you know editorializing or trying to say you know oh this is right this is wrong this is whatever you know you just present this uh this view of all the different viewpoints and there's a lot with with a movie like the godfather and also you know it's 50 years ago but I realized, I was able to rely on a couple of things. One thing I have to say was the uh, publication of the Diaries of Ira Zucker, Zuckerman, who was the assistant on the film to Coppola, and he published uh, a day-by-day diary of the filming. And he's uh, no longer with us. He passed away a while back. But that diary, uh, it's called The Godfather Journal, is astounding in the minute-by-minute, day-by-day detail of the actual filming.
0: Let's talk about the horse's head and blood. <laughs> this, I, you know, in writing yeah. my, my book about Fargo, um, there was the wood chipper scene near the end of the movie, uh, and Joel told uh, the prop guy, the special effects guy, he said, I want blood everywhere. Like, the whole snow needs to be covered with blood. And oh. you know, And there was, like, a lot of talk about, like, getting the right amount of blood to come out of the chipper, and I, all those thoughts went through my head, as I was reading your book, about how vivid the horse's head needs to be, what kind of horse's head it would be, and how the blood would look.
1: There were was, was some difficulties in finding a horse's head. Coppola insisted on a real racehorse's head because that was what Khartoum was. Right. It, just and, uh, no, it just can't be a mare. No, it just can't be a working horse. It needs to be a racehorse. And so they did find a racehorse's head, and they brought it to the estate, the Guggenheim estate.
0: But but you know but 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 a racehorse's head is really really difficult to find. You just can't go out no, and buy no, one. No, you
1: can't just go. out, But they found one. A, a racehorse apparently had just been put down the day before, and they were lucky enough to find a racehorse's head at a dog food factory. Yes, at a dog food factory, I believe. I'm not sure. I can't remember that. But I think so. Yeah. And so uh, they brought the the horse's head to the to the mansion where John Marley was in his pajamas. And they said, not enough blood, they keep pouring more blood on. And John Marley to his credit was just like in bed all day with all that blood in that horse's head. And uh, they shot this scene. And at the end, as I write in the book, someone said, uh, do you want to keep those pajamas as a souvenir? And he goes, I'll tell you what you can do with those pajamas. (laughs) You know, they were, (laughs) the windows were closed, so it was hot. You know, and he had been in bed for hours upon hours. With an actual horse's head. With an actual horse's head, and what a scene it was, right?
0: Yeah, and why don't we also talk about uh, the scene where Pacino kills two guys, in the restaurant how difficult was yeah. it was it to find that particular restaurant versus perhaps oh. the one that was in manhattan where all the gangsters hung out
1: yeah not a lot of restaurant tourists wanted to, wanted their restaurant to be uh the scene in the film where two men are killed so uh they finally found they looked for restaurants uh, all over the all over the environs of new york city and finally dean Tavolaris, uh who directed the art in the movie who's such a genius he um came upon this restaurant and he just said, it's perfect. The outside was amazing. And he said the inside was just as good. And that's where the pivotal scene where Michael guns down the two, uh, the two turncoats occurs.
0: And did, how did Pacino do in that scene? Was it difficult for him?
1: Yeah, it was very difficult because, uh, you know, he, uh, he sprained his ankle in the getaway. Uh, after doing the shooting, he ran out, but nobody had told him. He said, uh, you know, what to do to jump on the car or whatever. So this was according to uh, Iris Zuckerman's uh, journal. And so he sprained his ankle and was out for a few days. That's why he had that cane that Sonny uh, uses in the uh, scene that before that where he says the line, bada bing. You know, he had a cane, and that was Pacino's real cane. Um so, yeah, and so, you know, but as far as the, what, he, what he did with the scene, it was amazing. He pulled it off like clockwork. Uh, you know, he, they told him originally, to, you know, as Clemenza tells him in the basement, when you come out of the toilet, you, you should be firing, you know. But instead, he comes and he sits down, and at that moment, you hear the overhead train rumble up by, which was added in later. There was an overhead train, but that didn't um, that didn't happen uh, at that moment. But they added that in later, and you see him stand up and bang. You know, it's so majestic. You know, in its intensity, and it's just everything that Coppola envisioned. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the other
0: actors in the movie. Let's start with uh, John Cazale, who played Fredo and who who died way way too young uh this was you know just perfect casting and, and yeah. he, he was such a terrific actor
1: yeah john Cazale was uh you know uh, on broadway when they saw him fred ruse the casting director w- was uh, going to see richard Dreyfuss in a play called line and he saw john Cazale, and he um or john Cazale maybe and he um just thought that's fredo you know and was, they went. he went backstage and he goes really you know because everybody wanted to be in the godfather and he, he couldn't but he was surprised but you know what a role can you imagine anybody else playing that role he was so great
0: and what about diane keaton was diane keaton a an unusual choice
1: <laughs> well she wasn't she wasn't a household name at the time she was uh no, she was on a, on a television commercial. Yeah, I think it was for a, a deodorant or something, and she was in a track suit. Excuse me, ma'am. Why the tracksuit?
0: You kidding? Thank Between you housework, kids, and shopping, I put in five miles a day. And your deodorant? That's hour after hour double dry. The long-distance deodorant. Got a special formula that helps stop wetness and odor mile after mile.
1: Coppola thought she would be great because she was a little bit off center and not what you would expect, but she just inhabited the role from the very, very beginning of Kay Adams. She's so waspy. Yeah, she looks, yeah, and she had that, you know, she later talked about that huge uh, wig that they had her wear, but she just was perfect, as was, you know, Coppola's sister, Talia Shire, as Connie. Casting was perfect from start to finish.
0: Let's talk about someone who's not a name, but who I love the story of this, of this particular guy in your
1: book, an actor by the name of Lenny Montana. I mean, of all the people in the movie, he's just like this character that jumps off the screen. Don Calo, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your home on the wedding day of your daughter. And may that first child be a masculine child. Don. Michael. Case is, who is that man over there talking talking to himself? himself? See that scary guy over there? He's a very scary guy. Well, who is he? What's his name?
0: His name is Luca Brasi. He helps my father
1: out sometimes. So Lenny Montana, he was uh, a a professional wrestler who dazzled crowds uh, across America. They said he was fierce and, you know, he was like, this domineering force in the ring, but he had never been an act, been acting, and the way he told it in newspaper interviews back in the 70s, was he was visiting his mother one day, and he saw these barricades, and he said, what's going on, she said, or somebody said, oh, they're filming a movie called The Godfather, and they had been looking for the perfect actor to play uh, Luca Brazzi, and they haven't been able to find him, and they were already filming, uh, so. Uh, as I say in the book, you know, they were looking for him, but finally he found them. The producer Al Ruddy saw him head and shoulders above the pro- crowd and brought him over to meet Coppola. And Coppola looked at him and said, "That's Luca Brasi." <laughs> and wow, was he! He was the greatest. I mean, he was like, oh my gosh, you know, the strangle scene. He said uh, it was like being in wrestling again, where you know a guy put a chokehold on you. He was just amazing in that role,
0: right? He was fantastic. He was fantastic. And I love the behind the scenes, practical jokes that you tell the reader about in your book. And so for Lenny Montana, he, at James Kahn's urging, he took a piece of surgical tape, put it on his tongue. And this is a podcast and not on the radio. So feel free to say what was actually written
1: on that piece of surgical no, tape. No, uh, they said that he he stuck at his tongue. James Con. Uh, suggested that he put this piece of tape on his tongue. And during the scene with Marlon Brando, he stuck out his tongue. And on, it, on the tongue, it said, fuck you. And um, Brando cracked up, of course. And uh, then later, Brando stuck out his tongue and he had fuck you written on his tongue. So, uh, Anyway, that was a scene of the camaraderie on the set where everybody seemed to have a great time.
0: Who knew that Marlon Brando liked practical jokes?
1: Yeah, exactly. Everybody loved Brando. So he was he was great, a real trooper, I think.
0: So let's fast forward to the end of principal photography. And after right. principal photography comes editing and also music. So if I remember correctly from Robert Evans' book that uh, the first cut, of the Godfather was really short, and Evans didn't like it. Well, you
1: know that's a competing story. Some people say, uh, "Yeah, that's right. That's what Evans claimed that that it was very short. It was it was two hours and something." And uh, you know, Coppola claims that he always wanted it to be almost three hours. But Evans claimed that he wanted Coppola to restore what what he took out. What he in Coppola was says he was told by the studio to take out uh, things and bring it in at two hours. So. Who do you believe? I don't know. You know, I, I present both sides in the book, I think, you know, who knows? And and it's like but obviously both men wanted three hours, you know, I think. And because, you know, two hour two hours, it just is not a saga. Three hours it is. And so that was a battle between them. And also more than anything was the music. And the couple, again, could hear the music in his head. He heard the music of Nino Rota, who was an Italian uh, composer, and uh, Evans wanted Her- Henry Mancini and, um, or someone else, because you know he needed some bright music as, to, as a contrast to this darkness. But Coppola heard that music and met with Nino Rota, Rota, Nino Rota in, in, in uh, Rome, And they uh, came up with this score. One of the greatest scores ever. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, just you hear it everywhere now. You hear it in restaurants, in elevators. You hear it on television and the radio. And it's just the essence of the movie and that world.
0: Is there a particular part of the score that you really, really like?
1: Oh, I just like the beginning of the movie, you know? where you hear that, you just hear it in your head. I mean, every time I, hear, hear, I would hear that song, I, I mean, not, I, no, every, every time I would hear that score, you know, you just are reminded of everything. It all comes flooding back. How nervous
0: was Coppola and Evans and everybody else about the movie? What were the expectations for when the movie was released? Did they, did they think it was going to be a hit? Well, you know, Coppola
1: did not. He didn't think it was going to be a hit. He thought he'd deliver a dark, dark movie with a lot of talking. And Evans claimed that he always thought it would be, but I don't know. You know, but at the premiere, which was held in New York City, the Low State Theater on March 14, 1972, again, as I said earlier, when the lights went up, the audience s- sat in, in silence and people were stunned. And the next day, there were lines around the block, and that happened in cities across America. There was an article in the L.A. Times where they talked about um, what to do while you're waiting in line for the Godfather. You know, <laughs> really, born babies are being born. You can do your Christmas shopping. <laughs> you can meet the, uh, you know, your soulmate. Uh, you know, around the world, this happened. People were transfixed. This was 1972. And uh, people were just like lined up. They were showing it continuously. Yeah. It was around the clock, even at, up to like after midnight, I think. So, you know, it was a phenomenon. It was a rocket ship. It, it saved the studio, made it one of the most uh, uh, successful studios in the world. It minted a new generation of movie stars. It revived the career of Marlon Brando as the greatest actor of our time. And it it marked the debut of one of the greatest directors in the world, Francis Ford Coppola. And so, you know, it was a breakthrough on so many levels. And today I have to say, every time I watch it, uh, it feels brand new. It feels fresh and it feels, it tells the story, so well and it fascinates you all over again just like it did the first time are you a fan of the sopranos sure yeah i love the sopranos i love i love all everything in this genre i'm a huge (laughs) fan you know but it all comes back to me uh to that first one the first godfather
0: i love how in the sopranos um the characters refer to this movie as gf1
1: yes exactly
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you and best of luck with you with, you know,
1: selling lots of books. I hope. Thank you so much. You know <laughs> how it is. I really appreciate your time and help and your expertise. Absolutely, Mark. Good to
0: good to meet you. Same here. Thank you. Again, that's Mark Seal. The name of the book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli: The Epic Story of the Making of The Godfather. There is more about the book on our website, thedrunkprojectionist.com. That's the